Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, my guest today, and I'm excited to say, is Jen Patterson. Um, Jen and I go back away. Uh, we both um, worked in strategy, uh, worked in various, uh, she worked in more agencies than I did, I think. We'll find out in a minute. Um, and uh, has, in the last few years, would I say, taken a sort of a bit of a reevaluation of what she's doing with the life and world and work um, and taken a few different um, trajectories. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but I'm going to hand it over to you, Jen, to, to tell us a little bit about your uh, backgrounds, what you, what you did before you, what you do now. Okay, sure. Well, I'm so excited, Ed, that you want to talk to me. This is so fun. Um, my background... Yeah, I guess I've worked at probably a couple more agencies than you, but I feel like from an agency, you know, 20 plus years in the agency business um, standpoint, it hasn't been that many. I started out my career at Wyden & Kennedy. Um, I worked in Portland initially for about six years, then I moved to London, then back to Portland. And an amazing place. I mean, still probably, you know, the best agency experience. I, I have had through my career, a very, very special place, special people. But you know, I kind of have grown up there. So I was like, I need to get out of high school. Like, what am I going to go do with myself? And I went to work at what's now the community. It was La Comunidad at the time I went to work there. Um, and Jose Moya and had um, worked at um, Wyden and we'd overlapped there. And he called me, he's like, I don't know very many cool planners who speak Spanish. Do you want to come do this? And I was kind of like, hmm, Miami? All right, I'll try it. At the time I was married and my, my husband was from Mexico and um, we were both like, okay, you know, we can get the hang of this. Like, you know, obviously he's fluent in Spanish and I could like have passable Spanish and we were up for the, you know, after living in London, we were kind of up for it. Then we got there and we we're like, what is this place? <laughs> what is going on here? So, um, you know, amazingly, I, I was there for three and a half years. It was a very, again, it was kind of a little bit like a, a study abroad experience. I would, I would just in the, it was a small agency, very tight knit. Um, I mean, I love Jose and Joaquin, his brother who ran the, um, at the time ran the Buenos Aires office. And, um, you know, we'd like have meetings hanging out in the hammock and then the, the, um, uh, manatee would go by in the canal. It was very, it was, there were some surreal moments. Um, but, um, you know, some, some awesome times there, but also just Miami was just never for me. I'm such a Northwest, like I need trees. I need cold. I need mountains. I was like, I just can't wrap my head around the beach thing. I was like, eh. I mean, it's so great on vacation. And then you live there and, you know, for me, I just was like, I'm so confused all the time and too hot. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh my God, the humidity. Yeah. It's just brutal. Um, but there is some magic to Miami and I'm, I'm glad I waited long enough to kind of see it and understand it. I think it really changed me that time in Miami. 
um, in, in very, um, kind of, you know, it's, I think it's always expansive to move. Um, but that in particular was a really hard, challenging move. And, um, I'm glad I did it. Um, then ended say, up in, what would you um, say you got out of it. What would you say you got out of it? Like, what are the positives, well, what about the negatives, but what about, what do you, what do you think you gained? You, how did you grow? I mean, I, I think one of the biggest things was just, again, like I said, I'd, I'd been at, I kind of grew up at Wyden. I started at Wyden when I was like 23 or 24. So, you know, there are a lot of, even in my, in my generation, there were a lot of long-term Wyden people, but I just never felt I could shake who I was, you know, um, yeah. at that age. So I think it was really important for me to go somewhere else. And it was great to be at an agency that was only, you know, two or three years old when I got there. I mean, it, it, it was really, um, shifting sands and I was able to, you know, Jose was very open and, um, you know, I was really able to put a big stamp, but a big mark on, on the place. And I think how we, how we worked, what kind of people were there. Um, and so that, that felt good. I felt like I just, I kind of grew, my my chops there you know it not in a skill set way but in a confidence way you know it's like i, I don't know you've gone from you've gone from being a relatively junior i mean obviously you've risen through the ranks of widen but yeah. um now you're a leader you're an equal partner with agency leadership you were they were you know yeah yeah and and, and i think just you know i've heard this from so many people who leave widen i don't know if you felt like this because you were at, at butler for so long but there's a moment where you just have no sense of your market kind of market value or you're like constantly kind of like, do I suck? Have I just like managed to like hang on here by some stroke of luck? And I think, you know, that was just such an important move for me to just get out. It's just yeah. the getting out was the important thing. And it could have been anywhere, but um, you know, um, and it was just great to work on multicultural, you know, I think people who have never worked on, on, on multicultural um are really missing a fundamental understanding about america and a fundamental understanding about um you know really what um uh you know young people you know if you look at like the demographics on who's young in america it's not white people you know so it i i think that was just a beautiful beautiful thing and to kind of you know have develop my own sensitivities. I already had an interest in that, you know, um, but to develop my, my own radar around that was really great. And my Spanish got really good. Um, so yeah, it was awesome. Um, and then I moved to, um, LA to work at Deutsch. I felt like I wasn't going to stay in Miami much longer. I really wanted to miss the West coast, want to go back to the West coast. And, um, Deutsch was an equal culture shock at the beginning for me. Um, it's like the polar opposite of, of, of what the community was. You know, it was like a big, um, very kind of fast paced, um, you know, I, I almost, almost like a, you know, again, that wasp, you know, like the Latin to the waspy culture thing was a big, was a big culture shift. Um, nobody would say hi or introduce themselves in meetings. When I was like, who are these people? This is so weird. So I just started getting really like, you know, aggressive in every meeting and just like forcing myself onto people and being like, I'm Jen, I'm new, you know, talk, you know, tell me who you are. Um, and, uh, 
I, I really was wanting to go to some place that had more business focus because I had so much kind of creative background and I, I felt like, oh, this is a muscle I wanted to build. And I ended up being at Deutsch for a long time too, six, six and a half years and just learned so much there, just learned so much. And again, great people. Um, and then, yeah, um, ended up, it's probably like the longest resume. You probably didn't, weren't in, in, in for all this, Ed, but you, I'm dragging you there anyway. Um, and then ended up um, moving to Seattle. I, you know, I had my relationship had split up and I was like, what am I going to do with myself? And I, I really was feeling the call to Seattle. I was coming up here all the time for work. I had a client up here. And I, again, I just missed the trees and the water. And every time I landed in Seattle, it's so beautiful. And just, I just thought, ah, this is my place. And so I moved up and, and commuted three years to Deutsch to LA. And that just got really untenable. As I always say, I had kale and yogurt in two refrigerators and, you know, nothing else. And it's just, you know, I don't know. I'm not meant for that kind of existence. I see how people can, can do it, but I just, you know, it was a, time, a shifting time in my life. I was like, I think I'm ready for, to build the next chapter. I, the, the, the day I kind of gave an unofficial notice at Deutsch was the morning I got on a flight to LA and I started researching single parent adoption. I was like, I think this is something I'm doing. And so, um, it, you know, it just became, came, became time to do something else. And within four days of that conversation, I got a call on a job opportunity in Seattle at Wonderman. It was not my kind of on my radar. You and I have talked about that. I was kind of like, who, wait, what, what do they do? And I met the um, Julie Rezik, who was the president at the time. She's just like the most fucking awesome woman. And I was like, if this is what this place is about, I'm, I'm interested, you know? And um, I went there as, as a change agent and then Julie left. So I kind of had this weird limbo period while we were without um, leadership or, you know, like a tiebreaker. We were at this weird impasse. And I just, I just was kind of like, I'm not, it's not serving anybody to have, you know, the fire hose go to the meetings that a garden hose can serve. You know, it's like, what, can, what am I going to do? What am I going to do here? And I, you know, I've done so much co personal coaching on myself and I just thought that's what this place needs. You know, it needs an, it needs an understanding of how to take risks and how to get braver and how to push the work bigger. And so I just started to, I literally was like sniffing around for opportunities to insert myself as a coach in, in, in scenarios of like, Oh, bad meeting. Let's get together, you know? Um, and, and then in that time, the, um, agency had brought on a new president. She and I, you know, didn't really see eye to eye with where she wanted to take things. And, um, you know, I, I won't say it was like the most elegant transition for me, but what I will say is like, I'm so glad that there was kind of a kick in my butt to get out because I think I'm, I'm not a fast mover on stuff like that. And um, it just, you know, again, forced me into being brave. And I, I left and I did a freelance gig back with Deutsch for two months. And then I was like, this doesn't feel good either. I'm going to take some time off. And, and um, two weeks later, my baby was born. So I, 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 I always say Kismet saved me from advertising. Um, you know, I'd like worked in it for over 20 years. And I think 15 of those, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and just couldn't, couldn't get a, couldn't get a vision on it. And um, yeah. And, and, and so I decided I was going to start doing more and more coaching and lean into that. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm still doing some strategy stuff, freelance. Um, and then, yeah, I'm doing coaching. 
So, um, did you say, did you say in one of the pieces you sent me, did you say detox somewhere? Detox. Uh, in, in reference to advertising? Yeah. Detox from corporate culture or detox from advertising or something like that. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Is that something, is that something, the concept that you're familiar with? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, it is. It is. So, what yeah. is it? What, so, so just take me through that. What is, so you've got to get yourself into a place where you can be a, a, a voice of reason and a supporter and an objective um, person for others who need you, right, to help them. And so, but you, it seems like it's a sort of a cathartic process that you go through yourself to get to that point where you can be helpful to others. So, you talked about coaching yourself. But what what's the what's the toxins? What's the toxins in advertising? I like that you laugh when you ask me that. No, um, but it's a weird question. Like the toxins. Yeah. What are, what's the to, I mean, what's the toxins in the advertising industry that you would yeah. learn yourself from? Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh my gosh, you know, so many. And I would say I'm just gonna like caveat that they are to, you know, for me and my system, they are toxins. I think there are other people who they dig it, you know, and they, they can do it. But, yeah. um, you know, I think in you and I've talked about this before, I think the, um, there's a, a, a culture that has a focus on hours logged, and how much time you spent in the office and, you know, grinding it out. And, um, you know, I don't believe in working that way. I totally believe in the idea that, um, great work, great ideas comes from being in your zone, in your flow and in your center. And to be able to do that, you need, um, you need downtime. You need, um, you need to kind of, it's like why everybody has great ideas in the shower. Cause you're not, you're not really doing anything. You know, you're just like in, you're literally in the flow of the water and then bing, you know, something genius comes to you. So yeah, I was just, I was just yeah, yeah, exactly. Just on that point I yeah. was just to this, um, Gladwell and Rick Rubin have this podcast. Oh yeah. I saw you posted that, but I haven't listened to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's so good. So they're interviewing Rick Rubin's interviewing Tame, Tame Impala. And it's like, when do you come up with your ideas? And he was talking about how, it, you know, he may be in a club or a bar or a pub and he goes out into the quiet and then something happens. It's the trend. He's like, he's moving from one, space to something completely different and that transformation usually is spark for ideas and then and they were he was talking about um like neil young and like he, his, his old advice was whenever you have one of these ideas you have to ride it down you have to stop the taxi you have to yeah and it's it's that it's this like shower moment it's the downtime moment i read a thing with simon sinek of all people he has a whiteboard in his shower Oh my God, what? That's amazing. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, you, we, we were talking about a pay, a play, environments that actually are supposed to be creative, but in many ways aren't even conducive to creativity because they're all about being busy. Yeah, yeah. That's and one, one toxin. One toxin, yeah. And um, yeah, I think, you know, in every coaching session that I've done with people and I ask them, you know, what's your ideal day like, you know, what, it could be a Saturday, it could be a Thursday, but, you know, just give me your ideal day. It always has to do with this combination of, of a collaborative inspiration and alone time. Every single person, no matter what they do or what they, they're looking for. So it's exactly that Rick, Rick Rubin thing. It's like, 
everybody needs the collaboration, the, the, the energy that is created from ideas coming together. Everyone needs that, that, you know, some of the, you know, my amazing neighbors, the block I live on, there's several artists who live on my block and one of them has been really vocal about how, just how hard it's been with COVID because you can't go anywhere. So, you know, it's like, she's used to being able to get out and get ideas and she's kind of, you know, she feels, she feels stuck. And so she feels super disconnected from her creative energy. And I, you know, I, I get that because, you know, you do, you do need, you do need that conversation and then you do need that, that step away, you know? And I think yeah. the, I think corporate culture in general is not, has not in the past been very supportive of the step away. And, you know, as a culture, we're Puritan work ethic people, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I'm letting my team down or somehow being irresponsible. And it's one of the things I would coach my team a lot at Wonderman, which was like a super kind of process heavy, meeting heavy place. I'm like, just go through your calendar and pick the meetings that aren't necessary for you. If you wanna go and you're gonna get something out of it and feel inspired, go. But if it's just gonna be a drain on your soul, you know, what's the point? Your work isn't, your work isn't served by that, so. So what percentage of people you coach are from the ad industry or from corporate life in general, corporations? Oh, I'd say, you know, probably 80% are from corporate, corporate life. Yeah. And what uh, are they, and, and what are they, um, are you, and how many of the, what percentage of them are actually still in corporate life? Um, I would say most of them. Okay. So this is kind I, of. I think it's a long, it takes a long time to transition out of, out of stuff. And I think, again, that's that detox because I think what I've learned with myself um, is that it's not just, I think there are some people super entrepreneurial and they're like, I'm just going to leave my job and do my own thing. Right. And they're, they're, they're cool. That's not how I was raised. I was raised with a father who said, you get a job and you, you know, that's how you're going to be safe. So there's this whole ingrained structure within my being about, um, you know, working for someone else and, um, and that to, 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 to achieve safety that you have to um, somehow, you know, di diminish yourself in order to kind of play by the, play by the rules and, and whatever. And I think especially for women uh, or people of color, you know, in the advertising industry, there's always this moment. I mean, I, it's in, especially in my coaching clients, but in terms of just people I meet in interviews and whatever, I, I remember interviewing this one guy who, um, super cool guy. We didn't really have like a great fit job for him, but we ended up having like a two hour conversation. And, and he said, actually, I, I'm not even interested in the job. I just want to talk to you about this article I read that you wrote that was about um, the empathetic workplace and how I don't believe in a competitive workplace. I believe in, um, in a collaborative workplace and how I think that that competition, um, it, it, it degrades, it degrades the work. And I think it also leaves people out. And um, he told me this whole amazing story. He's an African-American guy. He told me this amazing story about how he worked at, um, worked at some really, you know, prestigious places. Um, the NFL worked at HBO. And I can't remember which place he was talking about, but he was saying, you know, I got there and it was like, everybody's talking over each other in these meetings. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, this is how we do it here. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to play the game. And so he starts joining in on the culture and then he basically got branded angry black man. 
And I was like, yeah, because that culture is not for us. <laughs> it's not for us. <laughs> you know, it's built by a, um, you know, white male patriarchy that is, um, doesn't, you know, doesn't take fondly to, to outsiders, frankly. So I think, I think, um, you know, back to your question about are people still in or not in, I think there's so much unloading for some of us that we have to do to kind of, you know, untether ourselves because it's, it's down to some really um, crucial pieces of our own value system. I mean, even to this day, sometimes I read an article in Adweek about, you know, I mean, I don't read Adweek very often. Somebody will send me something. It's like, oh, so-and-so, you know, big promotion, whatever. And I'll have that gee feeling like, oh man, should, should that be me? You know, you're like happy for the person, you know them, but you're also like in, in, in contextualizing yourself in a negative way with them. And then I'm like, nope, that's not my value system anymore. Like, you know, here's my new KPIs. Here's my new set of KPIs. And it has to do with time. It has to do with, you know, having, um, being present for my son, you know, especially during COVID. It has to do with creativity. It has to do with outdoors, having outdoor time. It has to do with, um, you know, a lot of things that are against what the office culture has typically been. Now, COVID may change all that, you know, who knows? Yeah, no, that's fascinating. There's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things you've, you've, you've talked about in that, in that, um, in, in what you just said, you know, the, the, the patriarchal, white male patriarchal club. If you don't, if you're not one of them, you don't fit in. It's a pretty, a pretty challenging concept. Did you, did you ever any time, I've just been reading a lot about Karl Marx. Karl Marx believed that the, the sort of, you know, you take the theories is that the advertising is used as a replacement for, you know, people work, basically workers in a, a machine, the cogs in the wheel, and the advertising is the thing they get to make them, that's where they get their, uh, satisfaction from the the the, the, oh, the yeah. world the material world is there to to um fill in the holes that corporate life takes away oh absolutely i mean one of the funny stories i was thinking about was i i worked with this woman at wonderman that um told me at one point that she had in the most miserable time of her career she bought the most jewelry and I was like, uh, you know what, that so rings a bell to me because in my most miserable time of my career, which had to do with that commuting, I also just online shopped a ton. I just was like the next, you know, the next, you know, dress from Net-A-Porter that was like going to show up my, my doorstep and you get this little lift, but it doesn't take away the, it doesn't take away the lack of fundamental meaning and connection to yourself, you know, that I think somebody like me was, was suffering from. And I think a lot of the clients that I, I, I coach are suffering from, um, you know, you can't shop your way out of that, no matter how much we as consumers think that, think that we can, I'm not, I'm not against shopping, you know, it's just, but you know, it's gotta, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, that, so is it, is it about, um, it seems to me like you, I was just talking about this, the, the, the Gallup poll on work in America, and it's always the same. It's like 69%, 68% of Americans are dissatisfied in the workplace. Yeah. It's a staggering number. Yeah. 68% of the workforce are going into work and doing something that they don't want to do. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and it's also interesting on the numbers. This is a theory that I have that I haven't like gotten a deep dive on yet. But, um, you know, when you look at productivity numbers and how many hours we as, as a culture think that we're working, we actually have a perception that we're working more hours than we are. And that to me is about the emotional toll of the workplace on us. That's why I think it, it, it feels heavy and it feels hard because you know, you know this as a creative person, when you are in a, in, in a groove and a flow about something, time just goes like that, you know? You have that, both that sensation of, oh my gosh, it's already four o'clock, and the sensation of the elongation of time when you're in something that's really yummy, right? And I think, um, I think for, for um, people who are not connected to themselves within their work, it, it is... Um, it's a sap. It's a soul sap. And then we're bringing this like depletion home to our families. So to me, there, there's a real, um, you know, it's almost like a, a social ailment that has, has been there for years. It's like, we, we feel like our duty and that we're supporting our family, you know, it's that very kind of um, the imbalance in the, in the sort of um, cultural masculine energy, right? It's like produce, 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 produce put all our time into work. And then when we come home, we're like tired and annoyed at our kids, you know? <laughs> and, you know, for me, I was like, I don't want to live that way. I've waited a long time to have a kid, you know, I adopted when I was in my mid forties. So I was like quite old to, to be a first time parent. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not interested in feeling that way anymore. I felt that way for a long time. I remember going to a dinner party one time at a friend of mine's house he was um also at guy we shared an office um and he his wife was an investment banker and you know they had like very kind of posh posh friends there or felt more posh than me at least and uh, i remember saying i just have this dread monday morning and i remember they all looked at me like i was like a crazy you know had had you know told some insensitive joke at the table or something like that that was like a wrong feeling to have and, you know, but it was kind of like, I kind of outed myself. I was like, yeah, and I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to feel like this anymore. So, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, since I've like, it's not that I haven't had hard moments, but, you know, I very rarely have a, have, have that feeling um, anymore. And it's just such a blessing. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. So is there, is there, is it, is there a way to change? I mean, is it like the only way, like you got two models, you, you kind of, you got the corporate patriarchal, you know, where busyness is given a medal and a badge, um, way of working, which is pretty much like most corporate institutions. I had my, uh, I remember before I came to America, I, oh, it was just about the time I came to America, it was a long time ago. Um, I was talking to my dad and, and he, he, we were, he was sort of mentioning something about work culture and it was, oh, yeah, I've been hearing from this friend of ours. She's the CFO in a, in a top 10 American retailer. So this woman who they knew, she was the CFO. I, think, I can't name the company, but yeah. a, big, a big brand that you know. And um, she'd been working there for eight years and she hadn't taken a, a, a decent vacation at all. Yeah. And, uh, she goes to the CEO and, and, and says, um, 
I've been here eight years. I'm going away for two weeks to the Caribbean. Okay with that? He said, if you do that, don't bother coming back. <laughs> was it you that was telling me that the old, was it the old um, TBWA Shiat motto was, um, you know, if you don't, if, if you don't bother coming in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Monday, but then it got kind of switched to, to if you don't bother coming on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday, which is even funnier from an advertising standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so you either, you're either, you're either cogging the wheel in the system. And I mean, even, you know, even, even the high earners. I mean, I thought this fascinating story about COVID and, and the investment banks. Hmm. Come in unless you've got a doctor certificate. You know, you've got 16 cases of COVID in your Madison yeah. uh, Avenue office and you're telling your young traders they must be at work. Yeah. So they're, not in, they're not insulated. Um, it's, it's, it's an endemic issue across corporate culture. So you're either in it and if you're in it, you have to play by the rules or you're out of it and you make your own rules. That's it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. And I think it's not that the, um, I think there probably, you know, there are companies out there that are trying to get better on this stuff. You know, it's like there are companies who recognize a diverse workforce actually makes for a more profitable company, you know? So when, when we work in a way that does not allow women who are doing the bulk of all of the, you know, child, um, feeding it, going to bed, household labor, you know, they got to get out of the office because <laughs> they've got a whole nother job that they're going home to. Um, not, not that that's not fucked up in its own right, but you know, women, women have other, other priorities. And when you don't allow for that, um, then, you know, actually your company suffers. It may feel like it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, tight, tight environment and we're, we're working at a clip, but I think it's just so afraid. People are so afraid to do something new that, that it will, it will somehow impede our profitability, you know, instead of just, you got to say one, you've got to believe yeah. that multiple weeks in this remote working is going to benefit mothers in, 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 in if there's a return, because you're going to have people trained who's like, yeah, sure. You're going home, but you're still contactable or whatever if we desperately need you. But that's fine. You know, you've got to imagine that it, it, it's going to create a new... And the idea that mothers may only have to come to the office two days a week is entirely possible, right? Plausible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think right now what you're just seeing is how much pressure there, there are on women, especially as you get out of the kind of... Um, you know, white upper middle class professional jobs, you know, all of that pressure of the household is just on women's shoulders right now. There's like this amazing article in the New York Times. Um, I think it was last week and the title was 48% of men think that they are shouldering the um, majority of the burden for homeschooling. 3% of women agree. I was like, that just says it all. That just says it all. You know, it was just so funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think COVID is really, um, you know, was it Twitter that just announced that they were going to they were going to continue to be virtual? So yeah, I think I think COVID has forced us all into this experiment, you know, which I think has been really really awesome, um, and just opened up other other ways of thinking about what work looks like and how we could structure this thing. And um, I'm I'm 
I'm all for it because I feel like, um, you know, again, people are so afraid to kind of try something new that in some ways we needed, we needed to have this hard stop in order to just be, be forced out of our comfort zone, you know, just by, by virtue of necessity, you know? Yeah. Can we, can we just go, um, can we talk about Wyden for a second? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a place, what do you, what, what do you, how do you describe that culture? Is it, is it a competitive culture, massively competitive and that's the success or is it collaborative? Um, competitive, I think, it? you know, I haven't been there for a long time, but um, what I would say is my experience there was it was a very competitive culture, but in a different way than other places I've worked. I mean, Dan Wyden, one time I asked him what he would have done had he not been Dan Wyden. And he told me that he would have loved to be a theater director. And I said, oh, that's so interesting because Dan's genius is about casting. Dan's genius at the end of the day is about casting. And the era I was there, um, and I'm hoping it's still like that, but there were so many oddballs, you know, there were so many, there, there, there was a tribe of kind of, you know, um, whatever, popular, popular kids or however you would call it. Um, and there, there were all these other people who were like sitting in their dark offices all the time with doors closed and, you know, never talked to people, but then produced this amazing work. So, um, and then once in a while would like come out and, and they were all, they were all part of it too. So I think, I think the thing about Wyden is it's, it, you know, um, it's a, it's kind of like a runner's shop versus the football team. Um, the, you know, runners in cross country are whatever competitive against themselves, you know? Um, and that's very much how Wyden is, you know, people go there to do the best work of their career. That's why, that's why you go to Wyden and Kennedy, you know? So they're serious and there's an intensity, but at the same time, you know, there were so many days where you walked in and nobody was there because everybody had come into work in the morning and it, there'd been big snowfall at, um, at the mountain and people just took off and there's, you know, four, I mean, I remember I'd like four, fifty, four, what's the, is it 420, 420, you can tell what a non pot smoker I am, 420 every day there was like a, a, a page overhead for whoever wanted to go on the roof and, you know, smoke out. Yeah. You know, and Dan doesn't, Dan didn't care or judge that as something that was against productivity. He just saw that he, I think Dan has a really high appreciation for chaos and a high appreciation for the role that chaos plays in creative thinking and that you have to have, you have to have some, you have to let the dogs roam, you know, you have to have a big yard for them um, in order to get really good work. And I think yeah, other places don't get that. Yeah like allow people to do their thing you know yeah yeah which is and i think and i do think for all the things we've complained about the ad industry for we are and part of our problem i think has been that we are not corporate campus political you know what i mean we're yeah. sort of outsiders yes we're corporate in a way we are organizations but could you imagine your know, 20 years of career in corporate America versus advertising America? Oh no, oh no, oh no. Right. 
I know. I when I was like 22, my dad got me an interview with a friend of his was like a VP at Blue Cross, and I went in there and I was just like, oh my god, I cannot do this. My dad was so mad at me, but I was like, that is like soul death for me. So yeah, I think you're totally right. Like advertising, that's why advertising is great and it's hard to leave, is because the people are so amazing. There's so many fascinating people. It's an industry you can leave and come back in two or three years to, and you know, it, um, you're, you still have value because it's a creative profession. Like, um, you know, just people who, um, I think there's a lot of people who really are looking to do um, not just great ads, but like, you know, like you had this interview before, you know, change the world. And advertising is kind of their side gig while they figure themselves out. I, I kind of like, you know, feel like in some ways that's me, you know, I just didn't know what else to do. And this felt like a good, felt like a good thing. And I fell into, I fell into widen. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. also it's also like life trajectories. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't have been a life coach year four in, in advertising. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, all of that, all of that experience means, means something, you know, yeah. it all means something. And I think it's, it's, um, I just, wasn't, you know, again, I, I, I'm so envious of those people who are like, they know they want to be a doctor at age six and they just, you know, grow up and become a doctor. And, you know, I'm not saying they're all, they're all happy, but I think it, there was a lot of, uh, anxiety and self-judgment that I had not knowing what it was I want to do. Um, but then, you know, it was, it was good enough. You know, you get, you travel fun places. You, I mean, I love talking to consumers. That's what I did my whole career was, you know, sit in focus groups and there's always someone in there that you're like, Oh my God, I have faith in humanity. It's been, you know, if it was flagging, it's been restored. You're so lovely. I want to like live next door to you. So um, that was going to be one of my thoughts. Um, have you ever seen, have you ever seen the movie? There's a documentary called The Corporation. Mm -mm, I haven't seen it. Check it, check it out. Okay. The basic, it was made probably 10 years ago. The basic premise of it is the UN um, has a definition of a psychotic. So the film's task is to see if a corporation, because basically there was a whole thing, legal thing about corporations want to be treated as individual entities. Oh yeah. Right. They are now legally. Yeah. Right. So the, this, the, the premise of the documentary is, okay, if you are a legal individual entity, we want to know if you're psychotic or not. So they do the sort of psychosis task. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fascinating, um, analysis of the, 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 the mentality of the thing called the corporation. And it goes back to, it goes back to this point where I think empathy and objectivity are lost. How many, how many, how many focus groups have you been in where the clients have just sat in the back room, pointed at people and laughed at them? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. Oh, look, look at that person. Uh, or, you know, just in the middle of this COVID crisis, you know, you got one massive brand going, you got a PR agency going, go and write a check for 50 million for the healthcare workers. 
And then you, and you go, guys, your workers are protesting outside of your restaurants because you yeah. haven't got sanitary conditions for them to work in. Yeah. So there's this distancing that happens that you don't care about the people who work for you. You don't care about the people who buy stuff from you. Yeah. And surely that is, that is, the, that is the way in to change those. Because that is business negative. Yeah. If you don't have, you don't have a, uh, if, if you don't, if you don't rally your employees, if you aren't using them, if they are inspired, if you, if you can't empathize with your customers and you don't get what they want and need, that's a short um, yeah. journey to disaster. Yeah, it was really interesting. You're making me remember some of the multicultural stuff that I worked on because, um, that, you know, that happens in the general market, but it really, I think, happens a lot in multicultural because I think um, a lot of clients see it as a pain in their ass that they have to, you know, a lot budget somewhere where, um, you know, talk to people in Spanish. God, what a pain, you know? And um, it was really a fascinating, fascinating thing to be, um, part of an, of, a, of an agency that was espousing that work, you know, um, and, and, you know, it's not at all about the work. It's about getting clients to get out of their own way and see what the business opportunity is. Um, also, also, did you see your role as trying to help these clients empathize and understand who the yeah. yeah 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 but you know it's like e e even the empathy and understanding they everyone has all these preconceived notions about you know these the marketplace and you know it's like it's like as if only white people have money as if only white people spend money you know and um just getting them to understand that there's a there's a business case here for this um was was the major work and it, it was hard i mean I remember i remember we did it um we did a bunch of agency rebranding and we did this kind of like um uh uh dog and pony show meeting all the search consultants and stuff and i remember going to the search consultant that was in boston and you know like at the time i was at the community we had we had taught you know we were top talent we weren't some low you know small local agency that was trying to like play with you know we have like worldwide award-winning top talent and they basically we went to this agency in boston and our as consultant and they basically like patted us on the head and we all walked out of there and we we're like oh my god like it was just such a metaphor for for i think so so much of what what happens out there in the world it's just that there's this big ego and um and you know, again, you got to break into the, you got to break into the club and somebody's got their, their foot against the door, you know, yeah. it was really, it was really interesting. It was really a crazy, crazy learning experience. So, you know, again, I think slowly, slowly things, things are changing because they're, they're just changing. I mean, again, it's like, you look at California, look at who's young in California, you know, it's, I, I you know, probably get the stat wrong, but it's like 60% um, black Latino and Asian. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not the kids. Um, and yet advertising, I think hasn't, hasn't really like caught up to that idea. You know, it hasn't said, Oh, what are these kids about? You know, 
what maybe they have something different or unique um, that's a perspective on the world. Did you see, I just was watching The Farewell. Have you seen that movie? Um, Lulu Wong um, directed it and uh, I think it's fairly new, although don't quote me because I'm like so out of everything pop culture. Um, but um, it's, it's, you know, the, the basic plot line is that the, the grandma is dying. Nobody wants to tell her that she's dying. So they, they fabricate a big, big trip to um, China to see her. And the young woman who's at the center is Aquafina, who was in like Crazy Rich Asians. She was like so amazing in it. And I think she was um, nominated for an award. Anyway, um, I was like, you know, this is, this movie just has such a freshness um, about how it, tells the story and i was like yeah this is this this is this is what youth culture is about here you know now it's it's not about it's not about um you know um what's the what's the um what's the dazed and confused or you know yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's something yeah yeah it's something it's something totally different and just i don't think anybody gets that and has understood the flavor of that you know yeah so um, what's your advice to people who are, who they've come forward and they said they've been in need of coaching. What, what, are you, what, are the, what are the first things that you ask them to do for themselves? Generally, obviously it's on a case by case basis, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny that you, some people call and they think they want coaching, but they just want to know how to, how to get a job at a corporation versus a, being at an agency. Like, I, you know, for me, the coaching I do is not that kind of coaching. It's like coaching is about internal work. Yeah. And it is about, um, you know, shifting out of belief systems that no longer serve you. So, you know, if you're, if you're down for some of that, that's, that's really what, what, coaching is is designed to to do and oh, it's sort of like it's sort of like working on yourself it's like it's like a, it's like it's like the gym of yourself like, yeah yeah it's like the gym of yourself yeah exactly actually i talk i use that as a metaphor all the time about how mindfulness and having intentionality around what we do is like doing your push-ups you know it's like you run a marathon in four mile runs that's how you train for a marathon you, you don't run a marathon in a bunch of 18 or 20 mile runs. You run it in four mile runs. That is, if you can log in those four mile runs, you're good on a marathon. And I think that's really about, that's, that's how to shift your mindset. That's how to shift where your, your heart lives. You know, I think most of us actually are pretty clear, maybe not on the job we wanna do, but how we wanna be in the world. I think most people are very clear. The reason we are not that way is because we're scared. We're scared that it's gonna, you know, we're gonna take a financial hit. We'll not be able to make money from doing it. Um, that somebody will judge us for being the way that we want to be. Um, and so, you know, what I what I'm interested in, and I've done this work on myself, so I understand how it works. Is 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 starting to build muscle tone around those ways that you want to be. I remember John Shaw. Do you know John Shaw? You must know John Shaw. I don't know him. I, I know who he is exactly, but I've never uh, met him. Such a lovely, lovely human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and I worked together back in the day. I remember him telling me once we were emailing and I was like, you know, John Shaw, I still am like trying to figure out who I am, even though I'm like in my late thirties or whatever it was. And, um, and he's like, well, I always just think about it this way. I could be in, um, it's about the people and I could be in pest control, but if it's with the right people, 
it's going to be great. And I, you know, I just, I, I always love that. And it, in the same way, that's kind of what coaching is, although it's the internal. It's like, if you are good with yourself, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, if you are clear in, in, in what you are calling into yourself, if you are clear in what your contribution is in terms of your energy and how you want to be in the world, um, it, it kind of doesn't matter where you work. It kind of doesn't matter what, what you do. That's the, the kind of foundation. And I think what happens is corporate culture puts pressure on us to conform. And it, I don't even know if it does it, you know, there, if it does it intentionally or just because we're also responsible, we want to, we, we want to conform to that pressure because it feels like, Oh, right. This is the, the thing about being a team player. This was like my big learning from Deutsch. Deutsch had a very, um, you know, what I would call a, a very dominant culture that was not my culture. And it never became my culture. And what I learned at Deutsch was to stay in my own culture, was to just create it and do it. Because what Deutsch actually ultimately cares about is someone who has vision and authority around that vision. That's what they're interested in. So, you know, the, the culture is this just there for people who, um, again, don't have that muscle tone built. But if you have enough muscle tone, then you know, I mean, Deutsch was great to me, you know, they were super supportive of me, but it took me to kind of go through all of that discomfort and find myself there. Um, and, you know, it actually looked very different than I think the rest of the way Deutsch ran. And I think that's the challenge and why it's hard to kind of shift in, in cult, corporate America. The challenge is, um, it's like Brene Brown talks about belonging. We're all hardwired for belonging, but we think the way to belong is to conform. And actually the people who have the highest sense of belonging are not those con that conform. They are those that follow their own code of conduct, their own, their own rules. But that's a hard thing to do because it means people judging you. It means people, people seeing you, you know, even visibility is it, it can be a really scary thing. I remember listening to a podcast with the poet David White who um, he lived, he lives up here at least part time. And he was talking about all this corporate work that he'd done. And he's like, Oh my God, all of these leaders are terrified. They're all so scared, you know, but they, they, they don't get, they're not in touch with their vulnerability because again, it's, it's not the culture. So um, I don't know if I answered this whole thing about showing up and being yourself. Yeah. And some people are, you know, some people are capable of that and some people just aren't, you know, they just, they just, you know, part of it's, it's a bit of an experience thing. It's a bit of a confidence thing. Um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I always, I always have said, I think all people need to come out. You know, I think, I think I had a moment of coming out and it took me until my forties to come out, you know? Um, but there's something really powerful about that, even though it's also terrifying, you know, it's also, you know, could, could, could in, induce bodily harm, you know? Um, frankly, you know, so, but coming out, we're not, again, we're not trained to think about our own self-ownership in, in, in the way that I think if you are in a, uh, if you're in at all a, um, a minority community of any sense, even being a, you know, a foreigner in America, you, you have more perspective on on the world you know you have more kind of insight on what the dominant paradigm is trying to trying to get you to conform to um and uh i think i think at the same time 
it also, there's, there's more pressure on you, you know, there's more pressure on you to, um, um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you, 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 you have to, you have to stand in your own because that's who you are. And at the same time, it's a scarier thing because you're not, you're not part of that dominant paradigm. It's an interesting, you know, kind of push and pull there. I always thought it was great to be a planner and not from this, and not from this country. Yeah. I thought it was, and I know it's kind of a cliche, like the whole English, oh, you sound smarter. But for me, it was never about that. It was always yeah. about, I have amazing access. Yeah. I can talk to, you know, I can talk to African-Americans with no issues that burdens that a white American brings into their room. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing to be a foreigner. It's a great thing to be a foreigner. You know, it is a great access point. And yet, you're, ne you're never fully inside, you know, so you have to kind of have that acceptance. And I think yeah, that I mean, goes I've for anything. Had, I've had, yeah, I mean, I've always had this issue because I've never really, I've never really, I never really, uh, I don't really like American sports. I just don't. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if you don't like American sports, that's a really, uh, and that, that pushes you outside. I mean, I like soccer, but that's not an American sport, really. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. So words of wisdom. Any final parting words of wisdom? Oh, geez. Parting words of wisdom. Um, people who, how do, how do people get inside themselves? What's the, what's the first step you've got to take? Well, if I, write something down. What would they write down? Say it again. If you have to, if somebody has to write something down as the first step in this process, what do they write down? I think I just would, you know, I think a lot of it comes from what we were just talking about. It's self, yeah. it's observation. You know, we're talking about right now, like, you know, being English and observing Americans, but it's the same thing. It's like, I always get people to try to get out of their heads and into their hearts. That's, I guess, my, my advice. Out of your head, into your heart. Out of your head, into your heart. Because your head's going to tell you all this, all this stuff that's what's keeping you within the dominant paradigm. But when you move into your, move into your heart, it becomes much easier to see what, what you're really about. And, and what moves you. And, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, um, of getting, you know, if, as you go through your day, where do you have those, those moments where you feel alive? And where do you have those moments that feel dead? Pay attention to that, because that's, that's telling you something. That's telling Thank you something you. important. You know, your body is like trying to communicate with you about something that's important to you. Um, and then from there, I mean, I never look at it as, what's your next job or what do you want to do? Or, you know, are you going to become a lawyer or a dentist or whatever? I always just look at it as like, how do you want to be in the world? What yeah. is the, what is the energy you want to show up in every day? What is the energy yeah. you want to show up in every day? And if you can be that, everything else will start to just realign to match you. Brilliant. Was yeah. that good? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. This was so fun. Great conversation. Yeah, super fun. Well, thanks for having me. I can't wait to get my, my podcast together so I can interview you. Oh, and we won't talk about sports because I don't know anything about sports either. <laughs> I do know a bit about sports, but I, I actually, um, I was going to, I mean, this is like, I think we're, I'm going I'm to cut here, but um, yeah. I was thinking just as you were talking about art, um, to me, that has been the most 
cathartic process for me to try and work out what the hell it is I'm saying, trying to stay, which basically is, you know, like, what do you feel, you know, what do you feel about something? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think artists, yeah. I think artists could teach us a lot. Oh, absolutely. Because artists are completely heart led. Yeah. Artists are completely heart led, you know, um, that's what art is. And I think that's why a place like Wyden, the work is so good because a lot of those people in there, they're not ad people. They are artists. It's just advertising is their medium, but they have something they want to say and they're yeah. going to find a way to say it, you know? Um, and I remember, I remember um, you know, I, I interviewed at Wyden and um, met Dan and... Um, That's where we first met. In the interview? Yeah, in, those, in that round of interviews to be ahead of planning there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always been enamored by it. I mean, for so many, so many reasons. I've been, an, uh, you know, a, a curious bystander and have obviously know quite a few people who've worked there and been there and stuff. Um, what was I going to say about that? Artists. We were talking about artists. That, oh, well, um, maybe maybe the reason I never was maybe the reason I never got the job there because I wasn't really you know I I didn't I I, I didn't really un, I didn't really understand that you know I I don't think I understood it you know I didn't understand that about them and I didn't understand that about what that means for a planner. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Planning is a, is a, is a tricky thing there too, because it's like, it's, so, I mean, in, at least in my era, it may be more kind of integrated and formalized now, but you know, who you are so much about who you are and your, uh, your relationships, yeah, you know, yeah. your relation, your ability to be in relationship um, to, to the creatives. And it was a very, um, it, frustrating at times and dissatisfying at times place to be a planner. Um, but then when you, when you got, you know, when you found your, your groups and you found your click, then it was amazing, you know, because great things came out of it. And, um, but again, those people for me tended to be more collaborative, you know, they tended to be more like, like me than, um, whereas other people, I think there's a lot of, um, kind of you know like protect protective protective energy and i get it because creatives are creating this fragile thing you know they don't want somebody to come and shit on it and destroy oh, yeah. something well, the area. trust you know, trust trust yeah. trust you know yeah. are you are you are you gonna are you gonna be a helpful trusting yeah. person or are you gonna be a destructive trusting person yeah 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 i mean it's interesting i think the other thing um you know, I guess I think it goes back to Puritan. I mean, I did a, I did a workshop, a photography workshop in France with, I mean, it's, I think there were two Americans. I'd call myself an American <laughs> um, and a couple of Scandinavians, but they were all French and the French are just so open. You know, they're just like, they just don't have, I remember talking to a head of a research company in Paris. She was quite, I was quite friendly with her. And she was, I think the Anglo mentality is a very introverted. Mm, mm. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I think that helps you. You kind of, a part of our cultural upbringing, irrespective of our corporate upbringing, is to sort of hide our emotions, especially for mm, men. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, totally. 
and that's not uh, that's not conducive to, um, to to being able to tap into your your, your heart very easily. Um, yeah. My little boy is like, his chart is all water and water is where all the um, emotion stuff is, is held. And um, he like was running around yesterday and scraped his knee and was, you know, came crying. And my um, brother and sister-in-law were over my sister-in-law said, you're tough though. You're right. You're tough. And I said, we don't say that here because the, all of the research about when boys start to take on the emotional suppression, it's so early. I mean, it's like, starting at three or four years old yeah like it's good to cry you know it's good to feel your emotions i mean he's just been having such big emotions during all this covid thing all of his frustration and i'm just really trying to like because i i think i grew up suppressing my emotions you know so so i'm just really trying to like check myself and like encourage him you know you need to scream do it you know scream get it all out get it all out and um yeah, we have such a fear. We have such a cultural fear about that that um, other places. I'll I give you an, a really. This is a pretty interesting. Yeah. Story. So somehow, the Romanian advertising federation just started to really like planners from America. They had that annual Romanian advertising federation <laughs> conference. Oh yeah, you told me that you went and did this. Yeah. Yeah. Did I tell you the story? Remind me though, you told me, but I, I can't remember the details. There's two stories that come out of it. One was the person who I'd been liaising with and who'd organized the whole thing, who worked for an agency there. I, you know, I got into a car and I was like, I just couldn't think of anything. To, I mean, I, I just like, I was just, I got to say something, you know. I said, have you ever seen, have you ever seen this movie, The Lives of Others? This is this East German movie about the Stasi who are following. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. And her comment straight back to me within a millisecond was, seen it, we lived it. <laughs> she told me the story about how her mother, when the records opened up, she took her mother to um, uh, the records and they searched the records, found the neighbor confidant, her next door neighbor, that she told everything in her life, every secret. Oh my God. So then I'm, then I'm up on stage, I'm giving this presentation. I can't remember what the hell it was about. It was some kind of bullshit thing I'd you know, done. And, yeah. uh, and there was not a single question. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I gave the presentation, like, it was be 15 minutes Q&A. It wasn't even one minute. There wasn't even a question. Like, okay. Next day, the, the great thing about this was there was a workshop the next day. that so you did a presentation and then you did a workshop. And yeah. Whatever, 15, 20 people showed up. Yeah. And... Uh, I said, how come no questions? And this woman comes up to me, mom, she was like, mom, she was like, yeah, that's, that's Romania for you. That's Romanian. So you don't, we're told not to question. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Tellingly, she's like, it's so ingrained in our DNA not to question that I'm really worried. It passed it on to, she had a six year old boy. She said, I'm sending him to theater classes, to dance classes, to music classes, to speaking classes because I don't want him to have that. Yeah, good for her. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think for me, it's like, you and I were talking about that, um, you know, the, the, the worst client is the client that just wants you to go and execute something because we as ad people want to know why. I think we're just total seekers. We're totally driven by the, the need to know why. And the questions about the, the intention or the purpose or the, you know, kind of the backstory, we're, 
we, we need to get into that zeroed in context and great idea. We have to, we have to roam, do the walkabout, you know, we have to get all that other stuff. Um, and I think clients, the more and more we become this productivity culture, the less and less clients understand that. They feel like you're wasting their time to ask questions. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for planning. You know, it's like, it's seen as this waste of time. It's a step that's in the way. Barrier, yeah, a barrier between the, between getting something done and the, between the two yeah. people getting something done, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, and part of that, you know, that's also on planning. You know, it's like what, what happened to us that we allowed ourselves to lose our voice, allowed ourselves to lose our kind of- Well, I just, I just did a podcast with this guy, Nicholas Nordstrom, he's mm, Sweden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Was, no, no, he's, he's like one of the most really experienced planner there. He's worked in the- Okay, yeah. Jobs. And, um, he, he was saying like how in Sweden, it's really fascinating. You can't be, you, they can't hire specialists. Everyone has to be a generalist. You have to yeah. know everyone. Every agency has to do everything because they don't want to hire. The client doesn't want to hire five agents. They don't have the budget. So they expect right. their agency to do everything. Right. Um, and even at the agency he's at, they do like, they have like, they rep photographers, they rep illustrators, so they can just get shit done. They don't need to go outside. Everything get done in house. And he was saying like the way they work, there's no egos and there's no hierarchies. Everything is shared instantly. Mm -hmm. There's no like IRs. Right. And no like briefings. Right. It's it's completely fluid. Huh. Interesting. It's like really cool. Like that's kind of, I would, so I, 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 the whole, the title of the podcast is the feature is Sweden. The feature is Swedish. Oh, interesting. What's so funny because at, at Wonderman, there was a real, um, strain of, of hiring generalists. And, um, I never agreed with that. I never thought that that was a way to great work. And I guess it kind of depends on what you're doing and, and, what you're looking for the outcome. Like I would, I would say thinking of the talent I worked with at Wine, those people are specialists, you know, they, they have a zone that they're, they're into. It's not that they, um, you know, great work comes out of that, but maybe we don't need great work all the time. Maybe. No, I, 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 I think, I think my definition, I think it's true. I think, I think generalists from a planning perspective, so you have, you have, and what I would apply in a planning perspective is human understanding. Yeah. You know, so, so, so the search for the human truth, the human, the, the ability of an individual to be able to go and find something that's powerful. And yeah. human, right. Yeah. And there are so many people called strategists these days. Are they yeah. actually don't do that? Yes. I totally they're agree. Called, they're called strategists because they know something about social media. Yeah. Yeah. They, know what, they know what Facebook's new thing Platform is. allows you to do, yeah. Right. They don't yeah. know, they're not told that their job is. So, you know, I, I think from a planning perspective, you know, you want, you want general, the, the generalist mindset. Yeah. That is a curious and, and willing to take on anything, but with the same force of desire, um, you know, is, is key. I mean, I think journalism, journalism and law to me are the most inspiring kind of like analogs for planning. Mm-hmm. I can see journalism that, but why do you say law? 
making the legal case. Making oh, yeah, 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 the development of a, an argument. Yeah, 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 I could see that. The interesting thing about law, though, is that one of the things that um, is the unifying attribute of lawyers is the ability to say no, more comfortable saying no than saying yes. So I, I do think that there's something in law that works against planners. I heard, I think I heard this from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was like, this is why our government's so fucked up. Yeah. Because there's no scientists or teachers or people who want to say yes. There's just people who are lawyers who want to say no. I'm thinking more of like criminal, maybe, maybe just a courtroom law, like, you know, where you're make, you're not, you're not looking at someone's like proposal and saying, we can't do that. It's a violation of trademark. Oh, totally. No, I get, I, I get why you're saying that. Yeah. Defense. You're acting in the defense yeah. of an accused and you have to, we're talking OJ Simpson, you know, you're talking. Yeah. Oh yeah. The glove, the glove doesn't yeah. fit. Yeah. 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 No genius. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, I totally get why you're saying law. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Cool. Well, awesome conversation. I will let okay. you know when it, when it goes live. Yeah, let me know, Ed. Thank you. And so great to catch up with you last couple of weeks. This was super yeah, fun. Let's, uh, let's keep it up. Yeah, let's keep it up. Okay, sounds good. All right. Have a good Bye. day. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.